0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East History Podcast. I'm Reuben Silverman, and with me today is Professor Puya Ali Magam, a lecturer at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His new book, Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020, and is based on his doctoral dissertation, for which he was awarded the Merdad Mashayeki Prize by the Association of Iranian Studies. We'll be talking about that book in detail today, but first, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. So if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, how you came to this topic, that would be wonderful to start off with.
0: All right. Okay, wonderful. It's wonderful to be here with you. It's wonderful to have this conversation. Um, I guess... You know anyone who writes a book will tell you that this is these books are in a way um, autobiographical, even if they're not directly related to you or your family background. Um, this is especially true of me because it is directly related to my family background. Um, I was born in Iran, uh, came to the United States uh, in 1983, uh, four years into the Iranian Revolution, uh, three years into the Iran-iraq war. Uh, Iran and those events that my parents um, were participants in and witnesses to were a big part of our household and our family discussions. My my grandfather was a um, general for the um, Shah's government that was overthrown in the revolution. Um, you know, And I have family members that come from all walks of life. Um, so I was kind of exposed to a lot of different ideas. Um, and so Iran was kind of this thing that was Part you know, as part of me is part of, you know, like especially growing up in the uh, in the United States in the eighties and nineties, um, or really even all the way until up to, up to the present. Iran is kind of like the most demonized country in the United States, and in the eighties, especially, we felt it as as immigrants and, and as children of immigrants. So whether we wanted to or not, it was just part of us and um, part of me, part of my brother, and. Um, You know, I I took on a more academic interest in the Middle East when I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, even before 9-11. But I was there during 9-11, and I was a pre-law undergrad. To be honest with you, at that time, it was the last thing I wanted to be studying because, you know, you typically learn law in law school. So I wanted to, you know, learn about this region that was so important and has been so important ever since and even way, way before, but especially in that time period because of 9-11. So I started taking courses. You know, I'm a I'm a native Persian speaker, but my reading and writing writing wasn't always the best. Started improving upon that, and um, you know, I, I took a course on on it's called the Iranian Revolution and its impact in the Middle East. It was a political science course at at UC Berkeley, and it was a, it was the first time that I was taking a course that directly spoke to my family history. And history all of a sudden became so personal to me. Um, In high school, you know, I wasn't the best history student, wasn't the best writer. And then I ended up becoming a uh, political science and Middle Eastern studies double major at Berkeley. And Berkeley is one of the really, I think maybe the only school or one of the few schools in the U.S. where undergraduates can um, teach their own course if, and this is a big if, if they could get a tenured faculty member and the chair from the same department and that department has to be relevant. Like if I want to teach a course on Iran, I can't go get a physics professor and a physics chair from the physics department to sign my forms. Right? So this course that I took on the Iranian revolution, and its impact in the middle East was no longer being taught after my, after I took it. And the, the instructor was a lecturer, kind of like the, I am here at MIT. And so he wasn't around to teach it again. And so, you know, I had to go and find a faculty member who was willing to sign off on my forms. And that was actually a challenge because a lot of the faculty members were not comfortable signing a form um, to institute a course on Iran because they didn't know what was going to be said. They didn't know if it was going to create controversy. They didn't know if there was going to be a backlash that's going to entangle them in, in you know the controversy. So I had finally found somebody in the international relations department who signed it. And then, um, you know, started my own course, mainly because this was, this was post nine 11 America. And and these are the courses that actually needed to be taught and they were being scrapped because there were budget cuts and they weren't hiring the instructors to teach them. So I was always really stage fright and, you know, didn't like speaking in public and, you know, but I believed in in the importance of this material. So I remember the first day. I was really nervous, sweaty palms, probably an enlarged tongue, if I remember correctly. And you know, I was there. The my my students were my peers. Essentially, we we're all undergrads. And I got up and because I was so excited about the material, within a couple of minutes, I I forgot that I was speaking in front of thirty students, and I went on for you know duration of the course. And and it it just it was one of those wonderful moments where I realized really late in my undergraduate career what my calling was. And I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. I wanted to be a, a, a professor. I, I retaught that course my a second and then a third semester. I had enrollment jump from 30 to 60 to 70 students. And then I graduated. And I was actually really sad about graduation because that meant I couldn't do all the things I was doing as an undergrad. So I was determined to find my way back into academia um, to be able to teach these courses. Uh, My my dad is interested because my dad wanted me to be a lawyer and he was like, well, if you like teaching so much, why don't you teach law? And I'm like, no, the reason why I like teaching so much is because this material is so important and and, and I'm passionate about it. And so, you know, from there I went to grad school, you know, a couple programs. And then um, when I got into the PhD program at the University of Michigan, in my admissions uh, personal statement, what I had envisioned ended up having nothing to do with what I ended up doing as a dissertator, as a, as a PhD student. And really it's because the summer before I started the program is when this uprising uh, in 2009, the green movement or the green uprising um, happened in Iran. And I was captivated by it and I understood it in, in a very different way. Um, you know, and, and, and my understanding of it was really informed by this, passion slash obsession i had been nurturing since my undergraduate career since i took that course on the iranian revolution and its impact in the middle east since i started teaching that a similar course so this is like you know early 2000s all the way to 2009 for like eight nine years i've been nurturing this passion and and when i saw this movement unfold i understood it in very different terms and and when it continued for six or seven months and then it um essentially was crushed by the iranian government I started seeing a lot of people talk about a lot of experts, a lot of commentators, a lot of academics themselves talking about how it was a failure. And I actually just didn't see it that way. Um, I didn't. First of all, I didn't think it was over, and um, I didn't think. And, and, and again, this was informed by history and Iranian history in particular. Uh, Khomeini himself, uh, when he you know, came at the helm of the Iranian revolution in 1978-79. He had led an uprising 15 years prior that you could have easily said was a failure. He was arrested. He was ultimately exiled, first to Turkey, then to Iraq. And for 15 years, you know, it was a failure until it wasn't. So when I saw this uprising happen, I saw so many victories, so many successes beyond the dominant narrative. And that was that this These protests erupted because there were allegations of election fraud in 2009. It uh, it erupted to either undo the election results or to overthrow the state that ratified them. And and it failed, really, in in both. It failed to undo the election results and it failed to overthrow the state that ratified them. But if you kind of transcend that binary, you see so many important victories on the ground, victories that I think are still haunting the Iranian government to this very day. And that's really that's really the whole point of the book.
1: Yeah, and so that's what I wanna that's what I kinda wanna walk us through, because you have so many good examples in the book of ways in which protesters had these small victories, large victories, but victories nonetheless, right? And so what I took to be one of the most important ones was the way you looked at how protesters, you said, subverted the political calendar of Iran. So to me, that was a very central point you were making. And that one you can kind of walk us through a bit. What was this political calendar? And what were some of the ways that the protesters challenged it? And how how did the ways they did this show us some of the victories you're talking about?
0: Yeah, so if you think of states as not just governments, but you know, a system of values and beliefs, right? That then we can teach our students in grade school. They're they're raised to think about it. Like in the United States, we think of the United States as this beacon of freedom, the oldest democracy in the world. Um, and you know, sometimes the the myths that we're taught don't really aligned with reality, right? So we, we talk about the United States as being like this defender of freedom around the world, but then, you know, we can't really cons- reconcile that with the fact that the United States has subverted and overthrown democratically elected governments around the world. The Iranian government is kind of similar in that regard. It has a system of values that has been inculcating an entire generation that has been raised under its authority since the revolution of 1978, 79, all the way to, th- to the present, but for the purposes of the book, until... The two thousand nine uprising. So thirty years, and the political calendar—it's not the—it's the, its system of values, its sources of, of ideological affirmation, and it, it really its sources of legitimacy are—they transcend the calendar. But the calendar is a really good starting point, right? So, for instance, a, a lot of the calendar has to do with religious holidays, right? The most important of which is Ashura, the anniversary. Of the seventh century martyrdom of the Prophet Muhammad's grandson, Hussein, Imam Hussein. This is a really important thing to Shiite Muslims, and Iran is one of the few Shiite Muslim majority countries in the world. When we think about, um, you know, Islam, people often say, "Well, there's a split in Islam, just like there is in Christianity." Uh, this is true, but there's two really important differences. The split in Islam is much more uneven, whereas in Christianity, it's about I don't know, one billion Catholic, one billion. Protestants and, and and Islam is different. We have like eighty five percent of the Muslim world is Sunni, fifteen uh, percent are Shiite. Uh, another important difference when comparing Christianity to Islam is that this split is has is not nearly as bloody historically as it has been in Christianity, but it has its own origin story and. And of the, this Shiite minority that exists in the Muslim world, it is a majority in only a handful of countries. Everywhere else, Shiites are a minority. So it's a majority in Iran, neighboring Iraq, the tiny island country of Bahrain, and the Republic of Azerbaijan, which the reason why it's Shiite is because it used to be under Iranian domain for centuries. And then we have sizable Shiite communities in places like Lebanon and Yemen and Eastern Saudi Arabia and everywhere else, really. Now, because Iran for the past 500 years has seen itself as this like the largest, most populous um, Shiite majority country, it kind of has seen seen itself as a guardian of Shiism. Like, so if you go to a lot of mosques in Iraq, for instance, where a lot of these Shiite shrine cities exist, you're going to see a lot of Iranian architecture. In, in the mosques, a lot of Iranian tile work, and uh, not just Iraq, but anywhere else where the Shiite tribes, you're going there's a likelihood you'll see a lot of Iranian, like an Iranian stamp on them, right? This is this is Iranian state patronage of these mosques across the Muslim world. So Iran kind of has seen itself as this, the quintessential Shiite Muslim country, and Ashura, this, the martyrdom of Hussein's seventh century martyrdom, is is part of Iran's religious calendar. It's a a day of mourning, not just in Iran, but anywhere where Shiites exist. The reason why it it becomes part of Iran's political calendar is what it came to mean in the story of the Iranian Revolution. In the story of the Iranian Revolution, a lot of Shiite symbolism, rituals and symbolism, were harnessed, politicized, and deployed to mobilize the population for revolution against the secular monarch, the U.S.-backed secular monarch. So, Ashura was December 10th, 1978. This was at a time of martial law, uh, military government. This was a full scale crackdown on the revolution. Um, And then, you know, this is after months, maybe like 12 months of revolutionary upheaval. And the, the, the Persian kings historically have seen themselves as, you know, guardians of Shiism, and now they have implemented a curfew and martial law during the month of Muharram, where Ashura takes place. And that was that was really discrediting to himself. So when the opposition leadership met with him, or a delegation of the opposition met with him, basically they said, "How are you supposed to pretend to be the guardian of Shiism and then banish?" or or implement martial law in a military government during Ashura. So then the Shah relented. And basically, the the, the compromise was, fine, we'll allow Ashura Day commemorations to happen just as long as they don't, um, there's no political slogans aired against the Iranian government, the Iranian monarch. And and that was a really tricky um, takeaway because the opposition was a clergyman. (laughs) So now, you know, the, the, For many, this this was an opportunity to show at the very climax of the revolution how popular this upheaval was, how popular this revolution was against the Shah. Then on the eve of this mass gathering of Ashura, where rumors were everywhere that maybe this is a conspiracy, maybe the Shah is allowing these Ashura Day processions to commence in order to get the revolutions, all of the revolution supporters in one location and implement a full-scale military crackdown and kill everybody and end the revolution in one fell swoop. So then it became a discussion, should we go or should we not go? And then the idea was that if we go by the millions, if everyone gets involved, the state can't kill us all. And if it does, what's one generation? What's the sacrificing of one generation for the longevity of this revolution and this country that exists for millennia. And so that's, that's ultimately what happened. So we have like the diplomatic cables, the U.S. government, the embassy telling its people not to come out into the streets. We know that um, hundreds of thousands of Iranians ended up buying burial shrouds, preparing for their own martyrdom. The Shah had stationed tanks nearby in case unrest were to happen. Helicopters were overhead. But literally millions of people came out. On the day of Hussein's martyrdom, essentially ready to die for the revolution. So this religious holiday now in the context of the revolution became a deeply important political event. So the the Iranian government post-revolution has instituted all all these days as part of its political calendar, right? And, And kind of it's a day where people now come out, not only to observe religious holidays, but as a as a as a day to kind of pay tribute to the revolution or pay tribute to a modern interpretation of Hossein's martyrdom. And the idea, for instance, is if Hossein if Hussein in the seventh century rose up against tyranny and injustice, and so we so did we to honor him properly, not just mourn him like you know customary customarily people had done before, they just mourned him. Now, the interpretation was in the 70s, people were not just mourning him anymore, but heeding his example. The idea is that if the prophet Muhammad's grandson, here, here, let me say this, before Hussein died a martyr's death. So kind of people saw this as a defeat. Well, if if God let Hussein, Hussein, the prophet's grandson die, then what would happen to us if we rose up against tyranny as well? Then you see in the 60s and 70s a new interpretation emerge amongst militant-inclined Islamists, both clergy and non-clergy. The idea was that if Hussein fought and died fighting tyranny and injustice, is your life more important than his to then not fight the injustice and oppression of today? If you want to heed his example, you shouldn't just mourn his death. You should raise his banner against any form of injustice, not just a political injustice, but the injustice of a landlord, factory boss, an abusive husband, anything, everywhere, at all times. This was a really, really radical take on him. So then post-revolution, Ashura became this day where people mourned Hossein's death as well, but then they also came out and talked about the United States as this, oppressor or Saddam Hussein in the context of the Iran-Iraq war as this new murder of Hussein. But, you know, fast forward 1400 years, the, the, the murder of Hussein and the modern day manifestation of it. So it became like part of Iran's political calendar. And then all those events that were really important to the, to the history of the Iranian revolution, like this seizure of the U.S. Embassy, the seizure of the U.S. Embassy for, for most Americans, I would say is a nightmare. It's a traumatic event. Right. Like Iranians, basically, it, it, we, the discourse that we use kind of tells you how we frame the seizure of the U.S. embassy. We either call it the seizure of the U.S. embassy or the hostage crisis. Right. Um, and, and for us, that's what it was. It, you know, we, we kind of use that rhetoric that we often use when we talk about Muslims or Arabs or Iranians, hostage takers, you know, embassies, seizures and stuff like that. Whereas For Iranians, this was a a really important revolutionary event, right? They would probably phrase it if they were gonna talk to you in English, they would call it maybe the storming of the US Embassy, right? That gives it a different revolutionary connotation, right? And the idea was that this is the same US embassy. It's not that Iranians are predisposed towards towards hostage taking. (laughs) The idea is that the whole point of the Iranian revolution was independence, right? The Shah was seen as somebody that was installed by the United States in a military coup in 1953 against Iran's democratically elected government. So the first phase of the revolution was his ouster. The second stage of the revolution was the storming of the U.S. embassy to snatch Iran's independence finally and decisively from the United States. And, and it had to happen through the U.S. embassy because it was through the U.S. embassy that 26 years before the revolution the United States overthrew Mossadegh, the, the Iranian premier. So that now is a day where Iranians or the government wants Iranians to come out, gather in the streets, protest in solidarity th- in solidarity with the United. S- I'm sorry, the Iranian government wants Iranians to come out on the anniversary of the seizure of the U.S. embassy in solidarity with the government as it continues to struggle for its independence from the United States. These are part of Iran's political calendar. Another one is Jerusalem Day. right? So there was no such thing as Jerusalem Day before the Iranian revolution. Uh, the first Ramadan, the first month of fasting in the Islamic calendar after the revolution, Khomeini, with no authority but his own, really, as a, as a, as a high-ranking Shiite Muslim clergyman, designates, and he expects the entire Muslim world to follow, that the last Friday of the holy month of Ramadan will henceforth be the day of solidarity with Palestinians and um, a day of struggle against what they call the Israeli occupation of Jerusalem. So this is called Jerusalem Day or Yom Al-Quds. And it, it's not something that's it's celebrated or observed across the Muslim world, but there are many places that do it, especially where Iran has influence, right? So, Uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon commemorates this day. Uh, There's Iraqi Shiites that commemorate it. So Jerusalem Day is something that was created by Khomeini on the first Ramadan after the Iranian revolution. It's also part of Iran's political calendar now. And, And that discourse of Palestinian liberation was something that was taught to grade school children from the moment after the revolution all the way to the present day. So in my book, you know, I, I, you know, unpack or uh, investigate children's books that were used to teach basic grammar uh, in grade school. And it's about basically Israel and its oppression of the Palestinians. Palestinians are occupied. And there's a bit of shaming, too, that ever since the triumph of the Iranian revolution, Israelis out of fear are now oppressing Palestinians even more. And the idea really is to get Iranian youth to feel a sense of duty towards Palestinians. And and for the Iranian government, the Palestinians, this isn't you know it doesn't see the world between Sunnis and Shiites. That's very much a product of these last few years. It sees Palestinians and the issue of Palestine as an Islamic issue, and so the Palestinians are doesn't matter if they're Palestinian or Arab, Sunni or whatever, or have a, Sh- a Christian minority. To them, to the Iranian government, they're Muslims and it's and it's an Islamic issue. Well, this
1: reminds this reminds me. Um.
0: So when talking about uh. Palestine and when talking
1: about some of the other um, holidays, one thing you talk about is the way in which the, uh, images and slogans get repurposed. So in the case of um, uh, the, uh, the Day protests, you talk about some of the uses of this like Handala cartoon or how some of the slogans that w- would might get used against Israel become used against the state, the Iranian state itself. I, I,
0: if you could talk about that, I'd love to hear some of that too. Yeah, so so those are just some examples I gave of the political calendar. Now, you know, the discussion, as you introduced it, would, would focus on how those political calendar days and all those symbols and the meanings behind them were then co-opted by the opposition protesters, reprogrammed, and then leveled against the state. And, and that's what I talk about when I said a, a whole entire victory happened that people just don't know about. Because they use these symbols to rob the government of its sources of legitimacy. So the Palestine one is, is a key one, right? So on Jerusalem Day, when when, you know, when the uprising first happened, it happened right after the election results were announced and people alleged fraud. They protested every day for a full week. Um, and then came the Friday sermon where the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, gave a Friday sermon. And I, I, my father and I tuned in from California at three o'clock in the morning. And he basically said that, you know, the elections were free and fair. The Guardian Council has ratified it. And now if the protests continue, it's, it's a, they now constitute a security threat to the country. The, the Americans and the Israelis, they are taking advantage of this. They may be behind it. It's a security problem. It has to be put down. And whatever blood is spilled will be on the hands of the opposition leaders who are calling for further uprisings. And that's what happened. So the protests went from happening every, every day for a week to being cracked down upon, and then they went underground. Then on those days, of uh, those, those political calendar days where the Iranian government wants people to come out, the, the opposition would resurface. They would use those days where the government you know, wants people to come out, and then they would come out. but they would come out for their own intentions and they would air their own slogans against that government. So two groups would come out on these days. So Jerusalem Day, for instance, September 18th, 2008, 2009, the typical crowds came out in solidarity with Palestine, in solidarity with the government that champions liberation for the Palestinians. Then a whole other contingent came out, the, the opposition activists who came out and reprogrammed the day. So two of the slogans they aired were, Uh, No to Gaza, no to Lebanon. My life is only for Iran. And this was kind of like the idea that the Iranian government is so involved in supporting the Palestinians and and Hezbollah in Lebanon that they, they were just kind of negating all that to negate the Iranian government. Because the Iranian government receives legitimacy from its championing of Palestinian liberation because it's so important to the whole region. And another slogan they aired was, I have to say it in Persian because it just rhymes in Persian, right? And it basically says, oh, people, why are you sitting when Iran has become Palestine? And the idea is that if the Iranian government has taught us for 30 years that Israel is a usurper of Palestine, it's a usurper of power, it's unjust, then Iran has become Palestine in so much as the Iranian government now is a usurper of power, and we are like the Palestinians who are oppressed by this usurper of power. And then they they aired those slogans on Jerusalem Day of all day, and then they began hoisting symbols in their hands and in the air that related to Palest- iconic symbols of Palestinian liberation. So you see them raising rocks in their hands, right? Like people kind of always talk about or often think about the struggle between Palestinians and Israelis as a David and Goliath struggle, where the Palestinians... Are obviously the weaker party in this conflict, and you know they have some weapons, but nothing like aircraft carriers or fighter jets or nuclear weapons like the Israelis have. And you know they have more than just rocks, obviously. But rocks are kind of like the symbol of Palestinian defiance. So they again putting rocks in their hands, or they took the image of Handallah. Handallah is um, you know a political cartoon signature. It's a signature of a really famous Palestinian political cartoonist named Naji Al Ali. Naji al-Ali would never sign his political cartoons with his own signature. His signature was this pal- uh, Palestinian political cartoon named Handallah, which was a refugee child. You only, you only see his back, and he's in ragged clothes because it symbolizes Palestinian dispossession. And you see his back because he's defiant. And he's 10 years old because that's when Naji al-Ali, the cartoonist himself, was expelled from Palestine uh, when he was 10 years old. So when people around the world think of Palestinian uh you know liberation, they think of certain symbols. They think of the kufiya, that scarf that Yasser Arafat was always wore, but it's it's a it's a it's a scarf that Palestinians wear, and also non-Palestinians. They think of Yasser Arafat, he was a poster boy of Palestinian liberation. They think of Iraq, uh, and they think of Najil Ali's signature political cartoon, Handala. And so there was a there was a documentary about Najib ali and Handallah in Germany. And then it was dubbed into Persian and it was aired in Iranian state media. So then activists learned about who Najib ali was and who this political cartoon's Handallah, the signature, was. So then you see them on Jerusalem Day hoisting pictures of Handallah wrapped in a green scarf, the color of the uprising, and saying, Palestine is right here. Again, using that rhetoric that the Iranian government is oppressive like the like Israel and we are being oppressed like the Palestinians, using the language of the Iranian state against it. Because here's the Iranian state teaching grade school children about the unjustness of Israeli oppression of the Palestinians. And now Iranians on the day of Jerusalem Day were using that language to now condemn the Iranian government as akin to Israel's uh, occupation of power and themselves as righteous defenders of freedom, akin to the Palestinians. Mm.
1: And, and one other one other day, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, too, was the National Student Day. Uh, I was I had been unaware of that in Iran, and you emphasized the importance of that in the protests as well. Uh, so maybe you could talk on that a bit, too.
0: Sure. I, we're actually talking about it today in class, because oh. we're, we're actually doing this unit in my in my Iran course. Uh, and I, I don't know if people would realize this, but, you know, I'm a big sci-fi fan, so the, that subsection of the chapter is titled The Return of the Real Student Day. And that's a play on the return of the Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) And the idea is that, you know, know, in the U.S. we have the Kent State Massacre, right? Four students were killed for protesting against the Vietnam War. Before the Kent State Massacre was a massacre at the University of Tehran. When I was undergrad at Berkeley I don't know. I, I can't find the link. I've looked all over the internet, but I remember coming across an article that ranked the most political universities in the world. And as as a student at Berkeley, which is also a really politically active university, I was I was one. I wanted to see where UC Berkeley ranked, and I saw that University of Tehran was ranked number one. And. I I didn't expect it, but at the same time, I wasn't fully surprised because my my parents went to the University of Tehran and heard stories about the level of radical activism in the 70s, and, you know, I just knew about it. And so Student Day was born of a radical protest at the University of Tehran in 1953. 1953 is the year the United States and the British overthrew Iran's democratically elected government. Six months later, the then-vice president... Uh, Richard Nixon, flew to Iran to basically endorse this coup government. Iranians knew the United States was behind the coup. So when Nixon arrived, protests broke out, especially at the University of Tehran. And Iranian soldiers opened fire and three university students died. This is well before the Kent State Massacre. It was like the University of Tehran Massacre. And then every day after that, it's been a day of radical student protests against both the Shah and his U.S. backers. And when I say like radical student, I'm saying students have died since then, protesting the state. So it's, you know, it's a very, it's, it, 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 the University of Taiwan has a long legacy of resistance to um, governments. Which is also why post-Iranian revolution, the Iranian government created its most important a prayer hall at the University of Tehran. They wanted to stick a claim there for like a more religious space just to kind of um, push aside or dilute the leftism of the University of Tehran, the leftist legacy of the University of Tehran. Now, until the Iranian revolution, it was a day of resistance against the Shah and the the US government. This is is a student day, December 7th. After the Iranian revolution, the Iranian government co-opted it. It had become a day of mundane speeches where the Iranian government would send um, government personnel to the universities to give speeches about the importance of education, the importance of majoring in, in fields that can be used to help build the country. And that that's why engineering in Iran has always been so political, because it's not I mean, over here in the United States, it's the humanities of social sciences, I would say. Uh, and Iran has always been engineering because they always had this political feel. Like we gotta, we need these skills to build the country. And post-revolution, that's really what Student Day was about. You know, honoring the legacy that it had against the Shah and the United States, but also kind of depoliticizing its future. For 30 years, this was the history. You know, I'm generalizing a lot here, but in 2009, uh, when the when the uprising first broke out in June. And it was for a week long, and then it was crushed, and they would resurface on multiple days of action, like Yomar, uh, Jerusalem Day, September 18th, or the anniversary of the seizure of the US Embassy, November 4th. It was spread out. and that's why I call the book Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings, because it went from being one continuous one to multiple spread out along Iran's political calendar. December 7th is the return. Of the real student day, again, like they—they they basically there was no government personnel going and making speeches anymore. It became a space like it had always been for radical student protest against the government. But this time, it wasn't about the government and its U.S. backers. It was—it was against the government and the government alone, because there is no U.S. backing anymore, obviously. So that's why I say when I say the student day is part of that political calendar and it's the return of the of the real student day, the one that was born of radical protests. You see it now. And the only thing the government could do was try to make sure that people going into the universities were students. So they cordoned off a lot of these universities so that non-students couldn't go into those universities and augment the protests. So they, they're like, fine, if these protests have to happen let's have them happen on campuses and keep them isolated on campuses, not have them spill out onto the streets where everyone else can join. So they did everything and anything they could at every turn to kind of control the protest. And then, you know, this is December 7th, and then Ashura, the, that day, that most important day, fell in the same month, December 27th, 2009. That was one of those days where a lot had changed by December. The protest began in June, by December 27th after so much government repression one of two things could have happened it's hard to tell either all the moderate protesters basically stopped coming because the repression was becoming too serious for them and you can't blame them for feeling that way and if they stopped coming and then the more radical ones continued to come that meant the slogans began to change and that and the And the methods of political action began to change. So it wasn't no longer, you know, silent days of protests, but maybe rioting or fighting back. Or what happened was the moderates, some of them continued to come, but were now hardened by the repression they had been dealing with, they had been enduring, and the slogans began to change. But one thing is for certain is that the protests began in June and the slogans were, where's my vote? You know, no to dictator, death to the dictator. No, where's my vote? Where's my vote? Where's my vote? vote?" (laughs) And then in December, it was, this is during the month of Muharram, the month where Hussein was killed in the 7th century. The slogan was, this is the month of blood and Sayyid Ali Khamenei will be overthrown. (laughs) And of course, the government freaked out because it thought it had controlled the situation. Because it just it was repressing the protesters all the time. And then in December, all of a sudden, you know, because there was like a two month period where Jerusalem Day was September 18th, and then there was nothing again until November 4th, the anniversary of the seizure of the US embassy, right? So the Iranian government thought it was over, and then it would just resurface. And then in December, there was three days of action. And the third one was on the 27th of December, Ashura. And it was much more. I would say December 27, 2009 was the most violent day of political action on behalf of the opposition. This was a day where they fought back. And I, I, it's hard to know exactly why. I don't want to just say it was because of Ashura. They were feeling much more zeal about it, much more excited. I think part of it has to do with the fact that people were just had been repressed for, so, for, for six months now, and they were just being hardened now. They were tired of taking the hits. But the government really freaked out. Because now, now the Shiite Islamic government is being equated with the murderers of the quintessential Shiite Islamic figure, Hussein. So now the Iranian government is being cast as the murderer of Hussein, and the Iranians on Ashur are casting themselves as the righteous underdog who rose up like Hussein did against this all-powerful state. So the, Iran, the, the repression after December 27th was much more intense. There was a lot of people who were who, who were arrested and ca- or captured on that day who were accused of waging war on God and who were executed. Well, so let me ask
1: you this. This, this reminds me, essentially, because when we come to December, we also come to um, uh, some some of the protests tied in with uh, the death of uh, Grand Ayatollah Montazeri, right? And so I'd, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, too, because... On the one hand, we have students who are in the protest. And then on the other hand, we also have older older figures in the revolution, parents of students, who are, maybe we, maybe we could be described as as you put it, as part of a post-Islamist turn. So I'd, I'd like you to think about that a little bit maybe. How, what was this post-Islamist turn and how, does, how do figures like Ayatollah Montazeri and the presidential candidate,
0: Musavi, um, how do they fit into this exactly? Yeah, so that's that's the heart of the book. So it's not just a timeline of events, right? Where, where this is an interpretive history. What do all these protests mean, right? What does it mean when someone like Mousavi, who's an opposition candidate, was once the prime minister of the country in the 80s? He was considered the imam's prime minister. That was his like, nickname, the prime minister to Khomeini. What happens when the people like him are not part of the opposition? What's happening in the country for this to be taking place? Ayatollah Montazeri himself was one of the most important figures of the Iranian revolution. When Khomeini was in exile, he was Khomeini's deputy. He was Khomeini's representative in Iran, and he was oftentimes his representative who was imprisoned. He spent a lot of time in Iran's prisons in the 60s and 70s. He was made to listen to the torture of his son, Mohammad Montazeri. These people have like paid their dues, more than paid their dues. Montazri was one of the, if we could call him a framer, then he was one of the framers of the Islamic constitution. So he's one of the founders of the Islamic Republic of Iran. He was also a one-time designated successor to Khomeini. He He was supposed to be the supreme leader after Khomeini died in 1989, but he had a falling out with Khomeini in the late 80s. Then he was placed under house arrest by Khomeini's actual successor, the current Supreme Leader, Khamenei. And he outranks Khamenei, the current Supreme Leader, in terms of religious credential, and he's part of that revolution that Khamenei, Khomeini, and Montezir and all of them were part of. So he's being placed on house arrest from, I think, like 97 to 2003 before the uprising. And he, he's now out, a frail old man, and he comes out in solidarity with the uprising, saying that the Islamic Republic the government in Iran is neither Islamic nor a Republic. Like for for someone like me to say that, or someone, anyone else to say that, it's not a big deal, but this is a framer of the Islamic constitution. One of the founders who was a one-time designated successor, who's a senior theologian came out and said this, that was a big deal, huge deal. So then it was funny because his, his existence has always been a nightmare. For the Iranian government, post him being dropped from the successorship. And so, like, he was on house arrest and then he was released because the Iranian government didn't want him to die under house arrest, you know, of old age, because then he would have been like this martyr figure. But then (laughs) he ends up dying uh, of natural causes in December 2009. So, this is, it was just such a nightmare for the Iranian government because now his death and his public. Uh, funeral because the Iranian government couldn't um, prohibit his public funeral because this is somebody that helped build the system. The Iranian government did not like him, but to to basically like bury him without any kind of pomp w- would have been self defeating in a way. So they kind of had to let it. They had to let it happen, and there became this mourning ceremony that was another moment to reignite the uprising. And it took, obviously took on a, like an anti-government feel to it, because this is, this is public enemy number one for the Iranian government. And then the really interesting thing is, and this again goes back to strategies and repertoires of the Iranian revolution that were developed in the Iranian revolution, that then were harnessed for 2009 by the opposition to the government that came to power through revolution. And that is the, the whole ritual behind death. In, in, in Shiism, when you die, there's a forty-day mourning period, right? And the reason why it's forty days is because Hussein, Imam Hussein again, in the seventh century, when he died, he was beheaded, and then his head was transported from where he was killed in Karbala and presented at the feet, presented at the feet of the Caliph, as evidence that the deed had been done. And then, and then, and then, it was transported back and it was buried with his body, or so people believe. That all took 40 days. So now when you, when you die in Islam, there's a 40-day mourning period born of this, you know, history. In the Iranian Revolution, what ended up happening is, again, all these repertoires, all these, like, rituals were politicized for mobilization purposes. In the Iranian Revolution, activists, there were specific days where people protested and people got killed. And they had a 40-day mourning period. But instead of just going to the grave and, you know, being sad and wearing black and crying, which is what you n- normally would do, in most cultures, maybe. What ended up happening was on the 40th day of mourning, people came out again to protest. And then more people got killed. And then they had a 40 day mourning period. Three 40 day mourning periods helped bring the Iranian revolution to a crescendo. There's also a seven day mourning period. When Montanzeri died, his seventh day of mourning fell on Ashura. So it was like a perfect storm against the Iranian government. Here comes Ashura. Anyone who's mourning Montazari now has an excuse to come out on the seventh day. The seventh day falls on Ashura too. And and this is what happened. This is why Ashura was so explosive on, on December 27th, 2009. But... To talk about post-Islamism, this is this is kind of like the the theoretical like uh, it's not really an introduction. Post-Islamism is an idea that's been developed, especially by um, a sociology professor named Asif Bayot, whom I really admire, and his books are super important. His whole thing is that people, when they won't, there's there, there's no real template for modern Islamic state, so they write out something on paper, and it looks really good on paper. But when they go to implement it, they they encounter unanticipated issues. So they're constantly trying to, like, adapt and adjust and innovate. And then they start hitting snags and more and more problems. And then, you know, stuff happens. And through a lot of trial and error, a lot of those early ardent believers in the idea of creating an Islamic government begin to get burned out. And then they begin to realize they may have made a mistake. And clergymen in particular, like Ayatollah Montazeri are really important because the allegation usually is by the Iranian government, that if you oppose the Islamic government, you must be godless. You must be someone who wages war on God. You must be a Westerner. You must be intoxicated with Western ideas secularism. These are all Western notions. But when someone like Montazeri, who's a clergyman, a devout clergyman, is now saying that I made a mistake, that's that's not just him that's a transition that's happening people are now saying maybe we should maybe islam is too important to be confined, confined in the trappings of a state maybe islam is too grand maybe islam is too plural actually how are you going to build an a system based on islamic law when there's so many different interpretations of that law Islam is too grand is too important to then be confined to a state especially when the state begins to make mistakes in the name of Islam so now when you when you're making a mistake like executing somebody and that turns out to be you shouldn't have done or it was just people just didn't like it or, or massacre political prisoners which is what happened in the late 80s you're doing that in the name of Islam so you see clergy members saying we got to protect Islam by unpangling it from the state." so someone like Montazeri, who was one of the framers of the Constitution, began to talk like this. So this is why Iran is such a really important case study, because when the Iranian revolution happened, it was the world's first modern-day Islamic revolution. People often talk about, it's not the first Islamic revolution. The Prophet Muhammad's uh, revolution in Mecca and Medina, that was the world's first Islamic revolution. So people talk about Iran's Islamic Revolution as being maybe the first modern-day Islamic Revolution, and that kind of became um, a signal of things to come, right? Iran, Islamism did not start with Iran, right? But it was the first time it achieved power through a popular revolution, and then and then you see the shift begin to gain momentum across the region. Right now, now, like, Islam has become increasingly the gr- growing or the dominant political discourse of either states or the opposition to secular states. But what's happening now in Iran could also be a signal of what would come if the rest of the region developed Islamic systems. That's not the end all and be all of it. The idea is that Iran was the first Islamic revolution. Now the other countries are kind of like, you know, many people in other countries are following suit. But now Iran is transitioning out of it, or at least large segments of society, including many of the founders are transitioning beyond this. And that may be an important trajectory that could apply to other countries. It's very difficult to totalize. I don't want to say what happens in Iran is going to affect other countries. That's very Iran-centric. And it kind of presents all these countries in the region as being too similar to one another, which is not the case. But there's a connectivity in the region, just like there's a connectivity in Europe or connectivity here in the United States amongst our 50 states. What happens in one state or what happens in one country can impact its neighborhood. And this is especially true of the Middle East. And we know this from not too long ago when there was an uprising in Tunisia in the Arab Spring, that when that triumphed and uh, Ben Ali was overthrown, protests then ignited in Egypt and Yemen and then later in Libya and Bahrain and even later in Syria. So what happens in one country can have an effect in another country which is also why the United States is so opposed to Iran, (laughs) because they just don't want its revolution spreading, not because they fear Islamic authoritarianism, because we love Islamic authoritarianism when it aligns with our foreign policy, specifically like in Saudi Arabia. We just don't like Islamic authoritarianism when it's inimical to our American interests.
1: Let me ask, um, let me answer the final but broad question. In in the past decade, we can point to Outside of Iran, we can point to the, the effects of the types of contestation we saw in the green uprisings. We can see those in the Arab Spring protests. What about in Iran itself? Are there ways in which the types of contestation that you saw in 2009 have continued in different ways in the past 10 years, that they're still significant now in the, in the political dynamics of the country?
0: Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think if, if we're really asking about the legacy of 2009, because, you know, the modes of protests are constantly evolving, right? And, and you know, one of the best examples that people who work on Iran will tell you, like technology is, is not the most important thing the protests, but it's, it's an important variable, right? And the constitutional revolution in the early 20th century in Iran, it was a telegraph that people used to coordinate action across a really large country. Iran's a big country. And the, nationalist movement where where Iran was trying to nationalize its oil industry from the clutches of the British imperialism, it was the telephone. In the Iranian revolution, it was the cassette People were recording Khomeini's speeches in exile and and transmitting them and and basically just giving them to one another. In in the uprising in 2009, there was a lot of talk about Twitter and Facebook. Uh, It was way overblown. Right, but but text messaging was really important. People were coordinating text mess- through text messaging, and then you know again like, these things are not static, so they change. So like these uh, these secure apps like Telegram and other apps are, are really what Iranians uh, and Clubhouse. These are re- where really important activities and discussions and political discussions are taking place today in Iran. But the legacy of the Green Movement, the connectivity that I see is that before two thousand nine people would not publicly talk against not just Khamenei, but the whole idea of the rule of the jurisprudent. This is, this is the whole system, in, the, the cornerstone, the heart of Iran's Islamic system. In the United States, we call it the supreme leader. It's, it's, it's such a misnomer. The whole essence of Iran's Islamic system is that it has a senior clergyman that is ruling as a jurispr- as a rule of the jurisprudence, rule of the jurisprudence. None of that was really questioned. Or if it was questioned, it was questioned privately. Or in academia. It was taboo to air slogans against Khamenei. The Green Movement went from saying, where is my vote? To shattering all those taboos. That's something that has endured. So let's say the Green Movement was put down in February. So we started with, where's my vote? And it was put down in December, January, and February with death to Khamenei. You know, this is the month of blood. Khamenei will be overthrown. Death to the Islamic Republic. Death to the this, that, all this stuff. All that was taboo. Now when protests happen, they don't need six months to go from, you know, where are our subsidies? Because one of the protests that happened in November of 2019 was when the government, probably because of all the sanctions it's enduring, remove a a, a, a gas subsidy. And people were upset about that, and they protested. And the government just really cracked down. Like I think more people died in that week than all of the green protesters in two thousand nine. I think the final death toll is about one hundred and twelve in the green movement, whereas in November two thousand and nineteen could have been like a thousand in like six days. It's it's, it's just ridiculous. And and that, that's really because the United States government is so much more blatant now about wanting to overthrow the Iranian government that the Iranian government just sees any legitimate grievance as being entangled with U.S. foreign policy objectives. And they, they just, you know, are very heavy-handed, unfortunately. But think of it this way. When the, when the protests erupted in 2019, 10 years after the Green Movement, they weren't just saying, where are our subsidies? They were picking up right where the Green Movement left off, like death to the dictator, death to Khamenei. You know, we don't want this system anymore. It took the Iranians six months to reach that point. And the green movement, and then the green movement was finally put down. Now, when protests happen, the slogans pick up right where the green movement left off. That's one of those things where I talk about: this is this is an important victory for the opposition. Right? It's not. A, it may have failed to overthrow the system. It may have failed to overthrow Ahmadinejad's um, election win, but it succeeded in robbing the government of all of its sources of legitimacy. The government now is much more. Has much has a much bigger legitimacy problem because of all the things that have happened since two thousand nine. It rules much more through uh, military and security might, and that that means you know good or bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's the fact that the government is robbed of its legitimacy in the eyes of the opposition. That's an important victory, and also that the green movement isn't over. Like it's po- it's pollinating the other movements through these slogans. You see, you still see slogans that were innovated. At the time of the Green uprising being aired today, obviously they're not talking about elections anymore, or Musavi and Ahmadijad, and "Where's my vote?" like they did in two thousand nine. But all those more radical slogans—they're being recycled in these newer in these newer day protests. These are important, you know, cross-pollination—you um, know—linear events that people, if they only see them in, in history as in "this was one protest," this is one historical event, six months long, and now this is another one, they're gonna miss the connectivity. History is connected, regions are connected, and um, also things that happened in the seventh century could matter to the very present day. Indeed, well, I mean, I must say that one of the things I liked the
1: most about this book was the way you have such detailed accounts of the protests themselves, and yet you put them in this larger context and you give an incredible amount of background without taking away from the specificity of the event. So I think what you're saying really comes across in the book, both the specificity of the protest and this larger set of connections. So, I mean, I highly recommend the book to people. I really did like it myself and I hope I think other people like it a lot too. Um, the the last thing I guess I want to just wrap up by asking is this book is out, it's published. So what are you working on now?
0: Um, you know, I- I have a few chapters coming out um, in, in other books. Uh, one is a book that's published by the University of Georgia Press. Um, it's on the psychoanalytical, uh, the psycho, um, how should we phrase it? The psycho, the the, disc, the psychoanalytical discourses of 9-11 and how certain terms have been used to justify uh, certain policies and even wars, right? So I have a chapter on that, on the whole idea of the mushroom cloud. If you remember in in 2001 or 2003, in the run up to the invasion of Iraq, there was inspectors demonstrating that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction, but the US government alleged that um, there was mobile weapons labs that were being packed up and relocated when the inspectors arrived. People at MIT laugh at that because you can't just like pack up this highly (laughs) toxic material is is still going to be in the air. That's that's what inspectors had. They have the gear to kind of like ascertain whether it was here or not, even though the physical traits might not be there. And, you know, in the middle of all this, the U.S. government ended up um, using certain terminology and language to scare an already terrified population because of 9-11 to get them on board with the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And that was in a very coordinated way. All the members of the uh, Bush administration came out on TV and talked about how we cannot wait for the smoking gun that proves Iraq has chemical weapons to be a mushroom cloud over New York and D.C., and, and that that kind of metaphor just terrified Americans. And that's why the overwhelming majority of Americans supported the war in Iraq, even though Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. So, you know, I have a chapter on that coming out. But I think my next research project is on um, Black Americans and the, the growing community of Shiite Muslims. And I recently kind of, I met a few of them when I was an undergrad in Berkeley. I'm trying to reconnect with them now because... Uh, it just would be a fascinating topic um, to focus on because most of the time when we talk about Islam in America, we either talk about it in the, in the context of the Patriot Act and, and, you know, and the U.S. government and its FBI and its treatment or suspicions on Muslims, or we talk about Islam in America in the context of Islamophobia, or we talk about Islam in America in the context of Sunni Islam. Or the nation of Islam, um, and there's a actually a really vibrant, growing, interesting um, community of Black Shiite Muslims, and I think it would be wonderful to be able to do the research um, and and put some academic uh, light or shed some academic light on this, and hope that other people read it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that
1: certainly sounds very interesting, and I look forward to it. Well. Thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us. It's very much appreciated.
0: Thank you so much for the wonderful questions, Ruben. I appreciate it as well.